0: Call ClayGranger.com or just stop by Granger for the ones who get it done. When is a meeting not a meeting? When it's a Clayton's meeting, of course, at least in Australia. Jason writes, Hi, Bruce, I've been enjoying your podcast. A topic that I would like you to cover would be government and jobs. President Obama's focus is now jobs. My state, Minnesota, the legislature is starting up, and it seems like every bill they have is a jobs bill. I would like to know, when did it become the government's job to provide jobs for the American people? Why is it the government's job to provide jobs in the private sector? Did this start with the Great Depression? I understand that politicians like to have a good economy and are judged by it, was this always the case? Jason. Okay, great question. I would say that you would be right, of course, to put it at 1933, the point at which where economic blame for the Great Depression was laid at Herbert Hoover's doorstep and a new president took on the economy as if it were a war. President Roosevelt used the example of World War I and applied some of the same tactics that Woodrow Wilson had used creating new government agencies, in fact, employed some of the same people who had been Woodrow Wilson's people in those agencies during World War One. really treated the economic emergency as if it were a war, and therefore a presidential responsibility. As I indicated on a previous podcast, the mantra of we've got to create more jobs would have made no sense to Grover Cleveland. James Monroe suffered the first really troubling panic in American history in 1819, And in 1820, he was nearly re-elected unanimously. But in Franklin Roosevelt's time, he somewhat reluctantly created jobs through the WPA. Of course, first it was the uh, CWA, CCC, that actually created jobs for people getting a government paycheck. It was no dull. It was temporary, and work had to be done in order to get the check. But in a way, for the 1930s, it was kind of like a stimulus check with a work requirement attached so there would be something done maybe leaves would be raked parks cleaned bridges built but no building construction uh, fdr didn't want anything that would compete with private sector building construction even though they worked on roads and bridges and infrastructure that kind of thing probably one of the best known was the wpa artists program where you know writers and playwrights and actors were put to work. So jobs, as the responsibility of the federal government, certainly started in 1933. We can pinpoint it there, but let's not kid ourselves. Whenever the economy suffered, people did get cranky about the government. Martin Van Ruin, the slur that was used against President Martin Van Buren for the bank panics and early railroad bust that occurred on his watch. The other note is that While governments didn't do people-oriented actions like stimulus checks or work programs, and while the president didn't stand up to the nation and say, my priority is getting you more jobs, actions were taken. And even in these early federal governments, they were taken on two sides. One was opening up foreign markets for business. And that was done both to create jobs and to create wealth for people and businesses. That was certainly seen as a responsibility of the State Department, among other things. The second is more on the monetary side. Federal government was active during the 19th century. Grant, Grover Cleveland, these were presidents who took pains to preserve hard money, gold-backed money. But during his term, President Grant did float some greenback American uh, paper money and Grover Cleveland ended up using a government loan guarantee to buy gold in order to get gold that was being sent over to England. In 1907, the Treasury Department put up bank monies, the equivalent of a TARP fund in its day, to prop up, essentially, the stock market. And the very first action that the federal government took, let us not forget, the assumption of state debt was an economic action. Now, it wasn't at all designed to create jobs, but it was intended to stimulate the economy. So the feds have been in the business for some time. Okay, in referring to the meetings between the GOP and President Obama, Cameron Foster writes, it's a Clayton's meeting, Australian slang for the meeting you're having when you're not having a meeting, that both sides, theatrically, could benefit from. The GOP can go into this with something they'll describe as centrist, responsible healthcare reform proposals, but ones that the Dems can't agree to. When inevitably the meeting breaks up with no movement, they'll claim that the Dems are too radical and Obama disingenuous. The Dems, as represented by Obama, obviously, will have an independent analysis of the GOP proposals that will conclude that they are just dancing to the beat of lobbyists and that the GOP aren't interested in reform at all. So writes Cameron Foster. Clayton's meeting. I like that. I googled this term and came up with a few references. Now, there was a council meeting uh, where uh, one person said, you know, this, wasn't, this isn't a meeting that the government's having. This is a Clayton's meeting to some extent the meeting between obama and the gop is and to some extent it's not you know when the president in american politics invites you to a clayton's meeting it's still it has to be more than a clayton's meeting some ideas were easily dismissed others not so i thought maybe the malpractice uh, tort reform idea was dismissed too quickly Obama said to the GOP, look, it only scored at five billion. That's not enough savings to pursue. Well, maybe it should have been pursued anyway. I mean it it might be five billion. It's very important to the party. And if it's not important if 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 it is indeed a Clayton's meeting and it's not really important to them, they're just bring things up to stall the process, if that's true, at least you're calling them out. That I thought was maybe dismissed too easily. I wanted to point out that Craig Edwards also references Clayton's meeting and uh Provided some more information into this uh, very Australian term. It originates from a seltzer water, uh, carbonated beverage type product that was used to, that was marketed in order to reduce drinking in Australia. So a Clayton is the drink you have when you're not having a drink. That was the advertising slogan for it. So it developed into the culture in Australia. You know, so a Clayton's meeting is the meeting you're having when you're not having a meeting. I am very thankful to our Australian listeners for this uh, little bit of culture. I think the element that makes the meeting a little unClayton is Obama as president probably is not going to cut a deal with Mitch McConnell. At least not yet. What you want to try to do is probably peel off a few Republicans. What I see as a problem is, in this whole health care process, is that Obama and the leadership of the Democratic Party spent most of their time negotiating with other Democrats. And it's a very Beltway operation. Everybody in Washington knows that you have to negotiate with moderate Democrats. Max Baucus, Joe Lieberman, Ben Nelson, Mary Landro, you're not going to get these votes for free. But that is a Beltway process. Outside the Beltway, there's little knowledge of that. As far as the public at large knows, a Max Baucus is a D, and an Al Franken is a D, despite the very big difference there in ideology. And I know that some listening to this program will react to that. That's not true. Everyone knows that Al Franken's different from Max Baucus. To the public at large, there's a D next to the name. If you go back in the time machine and you you had, uh, let's say during the New Deal, you had Democrats like Miller Tidings of Maryland who were Democrats but were conservative Democrats opposed to the New Deal. And there were several others, and Pat Caron in Nevada was another one of these that was a little bit a different time if you go back to the kennedy administration where there were southern democrats he had to negotiate with that was a different time and there was a i think a bit more awareness uh, uh, at least of those who were you know regular voters and who were following politics and reading the newspapers that president kennedy had to negotiate with Southern Democrats. It was almost like a different party. And Franklin Roosevelt had his opponents in his own party opposed to the New Deal. That was known, I think, more in the 30s, if for no other reason than the fact that there were so few Republicans. And what Republicans were elected in the 30s, many of them were progressives who were supporting the New Deal. So the public was more aware of the nooks and crannies of Democratic politics. Now, I don't think that's the case. 2009, 2010, Mod Dem, Lib Dem split, that's all Beltway. You know, that's for the people watching C SPAN all day. When they bought off Ben Nelson and Maryland Drew, and I put that in quotes. I know, you know, it's controversial. Um, at least the story of that was seen as nothing more as Democrats rewarding members of their own party and not a negotiation that we needed this to get to votes. Meanwhile, If a Republican had voted for Obama's legislation, and there was some kind of Medicare deal, a la the Nebraska deal or the Louisiana deal that was made, sure there would have been some outrage, but it almost would have been. I think it would the reaction might have been different from the public. It would have been better understood as an actual negotiation with the other party who's opposed to you as president, as opposed to this. Why are you paying off members of your own party? A note about the president representing the party. You know, Obama is representing the Democrats. I think to the extent that it is the Democrats are represented by President Obama, it's not a good situation for him. And that's probably how people view it now. President Obama is seen very much as a Democratic president. Good presidents. You take FDR, Reagan, LBJ. They're partisan, but it's almost like they had a, a knack for being able to act as if they sort of fell into the office. The office is a great burden that they have to do, even though they ran for it. In Lyndon Johnson's case, he could claim that. He did sort of fall into the office. But these presidents were just good at playing things off as, look, I'm just trying to help the nation. I hope everyone will help me, you know, in this job. Of course it's an act. Behind the scenes, these presidents were king of country and king of party, doling out punishment and doling out awards. response to Fred Cole Jr., who wrote on the Facebook site asking about silver and gold and bimetallism, the issues that seemed to dominate 19th century politics. When did it start? It seemed like a later 19th century phenomenon, and why was it so important? Glad to bring this up, and I think you're right that late 19th century politics were dominated by this issue of gold or silver money. But you have to understand something. There's only so much that the federal government did in the 19th century. So you had uh, army, navy, post office, collecting taxes on imports, tariffs, and coining money. So those issues all became divisive, just as today what the federal government does now, agriculture, education, health care, becomes divisive. After the Reconstruction, so going into the 1870s, there was an idea that was associated with George Pendleton of Ohio, A senator, a Democratic senator from Ohio, had been the vice presidential candidate in 64, and it was roughly called the Ohio idea, which was that the government should coin money not only in gold, but also in silver. The reason behind it is that it would inflate the currency. So putting more money into circulation, if you inflate the currency, you know, the simple answer is good for farmers, bad for bankers. You're creating money not from a rare metal that has to be either mined or imported from some gold mining country. You're now coining with a metal that is cheaper, more available, and there are mines in this country who can produce it. Well, theoretically, just creating money from whatever metal you created from doesn't immediately increase in inflation. It would increase inflation because there was already gold money out there. The silver coins were additional or silver backed notes would be additional. And uh, what was the reason behind it? The farmers who have equipment, machinery, seeds, all sort of things that they they have to purchase, that requires loans from the bank. And anytime you inflate the currency, you're making the money cheaper. So it is easier to pay back a loan, right? Because you borrowed the money when money was expensive, hard to get, not a lot of it in circulation. And now Five, ten years later, you're paying it off with money that's cheaper, easier to get, but the loan amount is roughly the same, of course, there's interest, so the bank loses out and you win with inflation. Of course, there are other problems with inflation prices and and that sort of thing, so it's not a it's not a win for everyone. The Ohio idea was a very popular idea in the West and in the south. There's a slightly more sinister or political aspect of it, and that was that the silver mines out in Nevada, Colorado, Montana, these Western states, the mining operators were donating to candidates, and so if you were either a silver Republican or a silver Democrat, you'd get the backing of these the mining interest in these states. So there were a few people who had a lot of money and would get had an awful lot to gain if the government adopted a silver money standard. So that issue was uh, discussed all through the 19th century, from the Panic of 1873, uh, going through the Compromise Bill, the Bland-Allison Bill, where the federal government decided to coin a limited amount of silver, to the 1896 election, where William Jennings Bryan ran on a platform of silver money. And the issue was decided there. Bryan lost, McKinley won. The other great issue of federal policy that was just as much debated was the tariff. Democrats, for the most part, won a low tariff, Republicans wanted high tariff. Even on the issue of money, which kind of cut across party lines in a, in a better fashion, there were silver Republicans, as we said, and then you had someone like Grover Cleveland, who was a hard money, a gold-supporting uh, Democrat. It was anti-inflation. But the tariff issue was fairly consistent. So Grover Cleveland was a low-tariff man. Most Democrats were. Most Republicans wanted a high-tariff, protect manufacturing interests. It is probably in Woodrow Wilson's presidency where both issues were solved to an extent. The Federal Reserve at least ended the issue of gold or silver money by controlling the central bank that would produce inflation or not have inflation. The tariff issue was, for the most part, dealt with in his tariff reform program. Another issue that we're getting a lot of questions and comments about on the Facebook site for My History Can to Up Your Politics is uh, my commentary on the Supreme Court decision of Citizens United versus the FEC. So I just wanted to introduce a couple of additional thoughts about that. And one is just that I know there's a lot of lamenting about this decision and its possible effects on politics. Certainly, there is a danger uh, that corporations will just avail themselves of wild spending in politics right out of their treasury. I want to reinforce some points, and I'm not sort of defending the Supreme Court decision but i am defending maybe the legal logic behind it and probably my biggest quarrel with the supreme court is that they chose this particular small issue of the spending of corporations you know, for political purposes from the general treasury to be decided by the greatest court in the land but once that issue is before them the constitutional logic is is fairly clear you have freedom of speech you have freedom of association you can't limit speech of individuals and just because they associate themselves in some form, be it an association, be it a assembly, group of persons in a room, be it a corporation, you can't limit their speech. Then because of the Buckley Vallejo decision, you can't discriminate between a rich speaker or a poor speaker. And that precedent's been decided and the court was obviously not going to overturn Buckley V Vallejo. So the Rights can be dangerous, and that's what, you know, if you are not a supporter of this decision, and, and pretty much most polls are showing that the American public, left and right, are not supporters of this decision, you've gotten a lesson in the other side of rights. I could criticize the court. I probably would say that they're in their decision, their fear of the possible silencing of media corporations was over exaggerated. But I suppose there could be a future time in which some entity would try to silence even media corporations, and this decision would be one of the wall of precedent that would stop that. It is abundantly clear in this decision, Citizens United versus the FEC, in the Parents uh, versus Seattle, Board of Education decision, in the Heller decision, that this court, with the 5-4 majority, led by Kennedy when he chooses to be with the rest of his conservative colleagues on, on issues. Clearly, they are supporters of a textual reading of the Constitution. Just what it says. It It is what it says. And they're not big on introducing public policy, what's best for the nation. I think the ultimate goal of any American law is public policy. And so it, it I think it's limiting to just think of this in in a textual form. That's definitely the court that we have right now in a majority. What do you do about it? Americans are, are outraged by the decision. They're outraged by the spending that corporations do in elections, the possible corruption that will result from it. I think one solution is a constitutional amendment. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently to the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand, and he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears.
1: Call clickgranger.com or just stop by Granger for the ones who get it done. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you.
0: And it sounds radical, but I think that's more because we haven't had a constitutional amendment in a long time. The last one, I believe, was, yes, 1992. 27th, one that had taken many, many years to pass. So we're not all that used to amendments, right? And then we've seen in the past various uh, controversial amendments, uh, balanced budget, burning the flag, and the ERA, which failed. But this particular constitutional amendment that i would envision which essentially would not be limiting free speech or changing the first amendment but somehow allowing the government to regulate money in politics uh, how it's worded you know would have to be decided in the same way the government was allowed eventually through an amendment to have an income tax. That was viewed as unconstitutional in the 19th century. Many people disagreed with that, but that's the way it was. So I think a constitutional amendment where you have an issue that a supermajority of Americans support right and left, it could pass the Congress and then get the votes in the uh, three-fourths of the state legislatures that are needed. You know, it's not as controversial as the ERA issue and could probably get done in a year or two years. So that's one. It's particularly appealing because if you have a court, and we think we're going to have a court for a while that has this textual reading of the Constitution, then that's your best bet, because you want to change the text that they're reading. The other solution is is maybe a renewed effort for uh, public financing. What had been a more of a liberal idea now might become more of a moderate idea because of this court decision and the amount of spending that's expected from corporations. It's possible. The other thing is we're going to have to look at the 2010 cycle and see what happens. There was a lot of money in corporate politics before, so how much will this decision really impact? This gives me a good opportunity to promote the Facebook site. We have over 700 people uh, on the site now. It gives you an opportunity to talk to other listeners, talk about my podcast. Every once in a while, I'll jump in with a comment where I have time. Uh, Lately, I feel like I've been doing more blogging than podcasting, so I you might not see me there as much, but that's okay because I'd like the listeners to sort of take over the the Facebook site. On that note, Corey Schmitz writes. Hey, just thought I'd start a little more relaxing topic. What sort of great history or political books have people been into, recently or otherwise? I would strongly recommend A Sense of the World by Jason Roberts. It covers the story of James Holman, known as the Blind Traveler. In the first half of the 19th century, he covered more ground than any other human being up to that time. He fought slavers, circumnavigated the world primarily on foot, was a major inspiration to both Sir Richard Burton and Charles Darwin. And oh yeah, he was blind. He somehow lost his place in history, which rightfully would be right up there with people like Stanley, Shackleton, and Cook. Nathan Cedric Tankis writes, The Shock Doctrine by Naomi Klein and A People's History of the United States by Howard Zinn. They're obviously very, very biased, but it's a good counterweight to traditional history. These are all good suggestions. Don McDougall wrote, Nixon and Mao by Margaret MacMillan, American Creation by Joe Ellis, which unbelievably I have not read. I usually get everything by Ellis. Don also writes, I read Klein, uh, Naomi Klein's book a couple of years ago. I thought it was more about societal change than history, but that may be just me. Mike Shannon writes, What Hath God Wrought by Daniel Walker Howe. The part of the Oxford history of the United States that deals with the period between the War of 1812 and the Mexican War. Fascinating period in American history. Second Great Awakening, Age of Reform, etc. Those are the other books in, the, in this series. Uh, also, an old book that I bought in a used bookstore. The Americans, A Social History of the United States, 1587-1914 to 1914, by J.C. Furness idiosyncratic writing style, but a meaty book that delves into all kinds of minutiae involving how people worked, how they dressed, what they ate, what they did for fun, etc. Great suggestions, Mike, And, and I'd make a point of that. I think very often you can do very well reading these older books that you kind of find on in old bookstores. Or, you know, it's a little tough to get them on Amazon. And I know I have my own recommended reading on Amazon. That's just to facilitate it, make it easier for you to get it because more people have Amazon accounts. For books, I use alibris.com. And I don't have any special endorsement of that. I don't get any money if you go there. But it really does have better selection of used books. So, you know, if you get the older books and if you're aware that there is a sometimes a bias towards them. They're biased, but it can be enjoyable reading them maybe for that bias, so you get a perception of what people thought. Lee Gustavon wrote, Stalin by Robert Service, pretty much the definitive biography of one of the most defining figures of the 20th century. The Story of Civilization series by Will Durant. Somewhat dated, 1930s onward, but a good facts and figures source for history. Ancient through Napoleon, multi-volume. And the prose is outstanding. It is, of course, Western-centric. Cameron Foster writes, I'm reading uh, The Making of the American President 1960 by Theodore White. It can at times seem a little dated, definitely a product of its era in America, but a fascinating account of the campaigns. I've also, I just bought a board game of the same name, The Making of the President 1960. Haven't played it yet, but for those who are so inclined, it is well-recommended. Bruce, I blame. Thank you for these purchases. <laughs> well, thanks. Guilty for you reading the book by Theodore White, but for the game, you were on your own. But actually, I did check it out on the internet, and it looks very interesting. Uh, most of these election games will, you know, you have a limited amount of, let's say, candidate visits and uh, TV advertising and other things to dole out, and it's going to be a matter of investment in states, and did you pick the right states, and, and do you win. But they're very interesting. Uh, to play. Because of that, you jogged my memory and we're going to talk a little bit about the 1960 election just for the heck of it. But I also want to comment, I think this is a great idea, listing your favorite books so other My History Can Beat Up Your Politics listeners can um, appreciate them. A lot of these books, uh, I wasn't aware of your book about the blind traveler, no idea about Gonna read it. My ability to rec- recommend books is is getting uh, limited. There's an interesting paradox that occurs doing this thing. I and it's a tragedy in a way. I don't. It's been a long time since I've sat through and actually read you know a full book. I end up doing. Research here, research there. I mean, you might read a chapter or try to read pretty fast, but a lot of journal articles and things like that. So you don't get to enjoy uh, just read a, a solid book uh, the way that uh, normal human beings do, right? To counter that to an extent, I'm working on a couple of long-term projects. So there may be, a, you know, a gap between projects. I say, well, where the heck is he? And some of that might be I'm, I'm putting some time into the long-term stuff. And it gives me the opportunity to actually read a full book. And with some of them, one is on German-American history, because I believe this is a important and forgotten part of American history. Because of the two wars, you know, they got a bad name, but it's a huge percentage of Americans are of German ancestry. And they contributed to the founding of the nation and, and every aspect of history. So, And the other is on the Reagan presidency. Why the Reagan presidency? Not because I idolize... A Reagan be, but because it's a it's a recent presidency, it's a presidency that's reaching the point where we're, despite the idolization of him that occurs, we're getting beyond where it's a partisan presidency and it's entering history, so we can talk about it more and look at all the sides. And, you know, it is viewed, at least by political scientists, as a successful presidency. You may not agree with the policies that Reagan undertook. So it's an interesting presidency to study more. And I'm reading President Reagan by Lou Cannon and Governor Reagan by Lou Cannon, among other books. Richard Reeves, Ronald Reagan, The Triumph of Imagination. But the Governor Reagan uh, is interesting because it talks about Reagan in California, and you see the parallels of how he sort of established himself as a politician, moving from being an actor and spokesperson into a politician, really cut his teeth there. And when he ran for governor, there were a lot of people that said, this is an absolute joke. You know, how, how can this guy run the state government of California? He's an actor and, and uh, did fairly well. So, and actually had some surprising policies, signed the first pro-choice law in um, in California history. You know, he's not as cut and dry as, as people think, and that, that's what I find out with more research. So, Don McDougal writes, Just a thought, how about some history of the Constitutional Convention, from independence to nationhood? How did the whole thing evolve? That's a great question, and it is going to be a question that I'm not going to entirely answer in the, the time I have. For this podcast, there is a podcast in the archive. Who, are, which is called "Who Are the Founding Fathers"? The archive is available. The my history can beat up your politics site for nine ninety nine, but. Don't buy it for that particular podcast, because I do believe shortly that's one of those podcasts that I'm going to pull out and make available, just because I believe it's so foundational that you have some knowledge of the Constitutional Convention, just to kind of get a sense of how the nation started. But another thing to keep in mind, inherent in your question, is that the nation didn't start necessarily with that convention. That convention was held in 1787. In, you know, from May to September in hot Philadelphia. (laughs) And the Treaty of Paris, ending the Revolutionary War officially, was signed in 1783. And hostilities ended with Britain in 1781. So I really had a decade as an independent nation, or really a confederated group of independent states. What became clear very soon in that history. States were quarreling, they were trying to tax each other, they all had their own money, and then they were quarreling over rivers. One of the things that occurs that led to the Constitutional Convention was a a conference about the Potomac River, in which uh, George Washington participated on the Virginia side, and Thomas Stone, one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, participated on the Maryland side. And Maryland and Virginia worked out a deal about trade on the Potomac River. But even though they worked out that deal, there was a a sense that, you know, we really have to do this for the whole nation. We can't be just cutting state-by-state deals on every river. And so that was in 1785, and that led to, you know, had the backing of George Washington, and that led to some other meetings. There was an Annapolis conference. That was the first attempt to have a constitutional convention. That didn't work, but we came back to Philadelphia in 1787. So I really didn't tell the story there to understand, and I'm going to do what I don't do that often. I'm going to get out my prescription pad and Send you over to a specialist for further information. So Ned Runyon's podcast, The History of the Constitutional Convention, is available on iTunes. And I presume it's available in the Zoom podcast directory. Uh, Ned Runyon's podcast goes into the history of the Constitutional Convention in a way more than I do even the podcast that I devoted to it. And then it does a lot of background. Uh, Fair warning. He's a conservative. And he's a big supporter of religion, and he's going to talk a lot about the founders and religion. He still tells the story, and he still gives you facts and figures that are, you know, are beyond dispute. It's not a partisan cast. He does have an opinion. I promised I'd talk a bit about the 1960 election. Some interesting things occurred. How Lyndon Johnson got on the ticket, the debate, or more the aftermath of the debate, the role of Martin Luther King in the 1960 election, which I, I don't think is is widely known, how the Founding Fathers might have saved John Kennedy. I'll explain what I mean by that. The events in the Biltmore Hotel in Los Angeles, where the Democrats were holding their convention, is fascinating. According to Theodore White's book, it appears that after Kennedy beat Stevenson, Kennedy beat Johnson, his two competitors in that, Race. Feathers were certainly ruffled, particularly with Southerners. One of the things that John F. Kennedy and Robert Kennedy, who was, of course, his brother and close advisor, too, needed to consider was how to soothe some of those ruffled feathers. And perhaps Johnson needed to be offered the vice presidential slot. But there was a problem there. Liberals who backed John Kennedy, labor unions, for instance, Walter Reuther, United Auto Workers, Arthur Goldberg, a big labor attorney. They didn't like Johnson. They felt he had voted against unions. Progressive governor of Michigan said, you don't want to do this. You're the white knight. Neither did Robert Kennedy either. Outside of these mini-party politics, though, all the rest of the politics made sense. Kennedy needed a Southerner to run on the ticket. This was a northern candidate, a liberal candidate, a Catholic candidate, and Democrats relied on the largely Protestant South to carry elections. Yet despite all these political calculations, it is possible, maybe even probable, that John Kennedy offered Johnson the VP slot, knowing that this proud Texan man would not want to leave his post as a majority leader of the Senate, where he was controlling many events. His good friend Sam Reburn, Speaker of the House from Texas, didn't want Lyndon Johnson to take it. So it appears two things happened. One is that, surprising at least Robert Kennedy, Johnson wanted the White House, even as the number two slot, more than anyone expected. He wanted a change of scenery. It was an ambition of his to be president. He idolized Franklin Roosevelt. He got his start during Roosevelt's presidency during the New Deal. When friends of his said, don't take the VP slot, you'll be less powerful than ever before, he replied, power is where power goes. Also, Hale Boggs, congressman from Louisiana in the House, convinced Speaker Rayburn to change his position on the matter, that Richard Nixon as president was the worst outcome, and without Lyndon Johnson, Democrats couldn't win. Did he want to be responsible for making Nixon president? On this, Rayburn seems to have flipped and then advised Lyndon Johnson that he ought to do it. When John Kennedy called to officially make the offer, Lyndon Johnson did ask him, Do you really want me? And of course, John F. Kennedy said yes. What was he going to say? No? (laughs) So this ticket happened. Kennedy Johnson. If you look at presidents and vice presidential candidates in history, probably was one of the most helpful VP choices. Lyndon Johnson helped Kennedy to hold the South, which by 1960, Republicans were feeling pretty good about poaching. He definitely helped the ticket carry Texas. They kept Lyndon Johnson down South for the entire presidential campaign. He actually got a little annoyed by it. It worked held the South, even though Nixon did better in the South than Eisenhower had. The story of the Nixon-Kennedy debate is now so well told that I won't, you know, tell much more about it, except that in the first debate, which got the most ratings, Kennedy was perceived to be the winner. But there's a point that is not often made along with that story. After the debate, of course, Kennedy got a bump in the polls. But it lasted only a few weeks, and then Nixon was back up. So it was more than just the debates that decided the election of 1960. Now, of course, the debates helped to equalize Kennedy as a candidate and convince many voters that he could be president. And there was another event that happened. Many Southern governors who were on the fence about the Kennedy-Johnson ticket backed it after Kennedy's performance in the debate. But the debates alone did not win the election, as commonly suggested. It was still a fight after that. It was the rest of the campaign the pathetic endorsement of President Eisenhower and the misuse of him during the campaign. The opinion that the Eisenhower-Nixon administration wasn't performing well. That Eisenhower's second term had not been as good as his first. That led to the close result. There's a third factor, the role of Martin Luther King in the election and the role of African American voters. Martin Luther King was arrested at a restaurant in Atlanta where he was leading a sit-in during the 1960 election. Kennedy called Mrs. King, Coretta Scott King, to express his sympathy, and it was well publicized. Robert Kennedy then called a local judge he knew in Georgia, and Martin Luther King was released on bail. Meanwhile, Vice President Nixon considered intervening with the Justice Department, but he decided not to. This was probably a mistake. Now, African-American voters had been leaning towards Democrats by 1960 anyway, but Eisenhower had done better than most Republicans with, with this segment of voters, and Nixon was hoping to do even better. After the inve- intervention with Martin Luther King, it's estimated that Kennedy won 68%, the African-American vote, better than, much better than Adelaide Stevenson had done before him. Illinois, New Jersey, Michigan, South Carolina, and Delaware Seventy-four electoral votes could be could be attributed to the African American voter turnout. But of course, this came at a price. Nixon would win 47% of the Southern vote and would set the stage for Republicans thereafter to poach these states. 1960 opened up a rift. There was no way that the party was going to get the votes of black voters and segregationists forever. Eventually, they were going to have to confront the the issue of civil rights was boiling up at this time. And Lyndon Johnson would do that in the 64 election, and the party would pay a price. The intervention of Eisenhower at the end of the 1960 campaign, I mean, literally the last week, started going out campaigning, helped to tighten things up. Yet polls were showing Kennedy up in the election. The Kennedy team was confident. By election day, the polls were much higher than the vote turned out to be. In the end, Kennedy was saved by a hundred thousand votes, less than one tenth of one percent of the votes cast. Who saved John F. Kennedy? It could have been Catholic voters. He did very well in states that had Catholic voters, but then again anywhere between 38 and 46% of his vote came from Protestants. Could have been saved by African-American voters, as we discussed. Could have been saved by suburban voters, which the Democrats had made a special effort to target. Could have been saved by those old big city bosses. Democrats were still winning over in those times. But I think in 1960, John Kennedy was saved by the founding fathers. He was saved by the Electoral College, where he got 303 votes which amplified his small popular vote win. While his Catholicism hurt him in the South and the Midwest, and the Midwest and Nixon cleaned up. But it helped him to bring in some big states, Michigan, New York, Pennsylvania, Illinois. The one effect of the Electoral College is that if you've got a large minority of people, but they live in the right state, their influence can be amplified. And that was certainly the case in state in two states at least Michigan or three states at least Michigan, Pennsylvania, New York. Catholic voters provided the edge and those states were going to the Democrats and they were big electoral prizes. And of course there's the often in the 19 in talking about the 1960 campaign, you'll hear about there's two states that are focused on Illinois and Texas as possible disputed states in the election. There was a recount conducted. The 1960 election in some states. All that happened was Kennedy got Hawaii. Now, there wasn't a deep investigation. Some of Nixon's friends wanted to pursue it, and others did not. The one thing to keep in mind is that Nixon would have had to win both Illinois and Texas in order to win the election in the Electoral College, not just one or the other. So even if it's true that Lyndon Johnson was crooked, and carried Texas for uh, Kennedy using some kind of uh, crooked methods. And even if it's true that the Chicago bosses bought the election in Illinois, you know, both of those things would have to happen, not one, uh, in order for the election to have been disputed. The point I'd bring up about Texas is that it was won in 1960, it was won in 1964 with Lyndon Johnson on the ticket. It was won in 1968 with Hubert Humphrey on the ticket very narrow win but he beat Nixon and it was won in 1976 by Democrats with Jimmy Carter at the lead so it wasn't a it wasn't simply a 1960 election fluke that democrats carried Texas now it is true during the Eisenhower years they did not those of us who like history and read history know that you've got to get a lot of different angles and a lot of different perspectives and a lot of different sources to understand history. So in understanding a little bit about the United States in World War One, I'm going to read from one of them. For the United States, not yet in the war, there was worry about the health of the state. Socialism was growing. The international workers of the world seemed to be everywhere. Class conflict was intense. In the summer of 1916, during a preparedness day parade in San Francisco, a bomb exploded. Two radicals were arrested. Senator James Wadsworth of New York Suggested military service be compulsory for all young males. Young men must know they owe some responsibility to this country, lest they divide us into classes. Meanwhile, a million men, English, French, Canadian, Australian, Austrian, Hungarian, German, Italian, were dying in Europe. In 1914, a severe recession started. England became more and more a market by 1915. Orders had stimulated the economy. Wilson lifted the ban on bank loans of the Allies. J.P. Morgan began lending in such great amounts to make profit and tie American finance to the interest of a British victory in this war. True, the war in Europe meant more production and thus more employment. But was this really for the benefit of the worker? Did the worker profit as much as U.S. Steel, which made $348 million in profit in 1916 alone? This is from the textbook A People's History of the United States by Howard Zinn. I find it an interesting read. Of course, one could take issue with some of the points made in the textbook, and it certainly comes from one ideological point of view. Howard Zinn recently passed away. And the contribution that I salute him for as a historian may be a little different. I think what's interesting most about Howard Zinn and the few other historians in this category is that he aimed the camera in a different place on American history, more at the little people he talked about, Indians he talked about, labor movements talked about, Act, political activists, women, African-American civil rights movements, class struggles, talked about the founding of the nation and who was really involved in the Revolutionary War and the founding of the early government and what it was like to be an average person then how was life like for the average mechanics in early America I think everybody should read Howardson's book it doesn't matter if, in my opinion if you come from a very rightward point of view I think you ought to give it a read I think it gives you a different perspective which can easily be matched by other, Historical volumes, and uh, you can argue with where he points the camera, but facts are the facts. I want to thank you for listening. The website is myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics dot com. The archives available there nine ninety nine. Facebook site. Thanks for listening.